Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Guys all excited as we're getting near the end of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ? You guys excited to see how this ends? Who doesn't know how it ends? I'm excited. I'm excited. I was telling Pastor Gabe last night that how I just love teaching the Word. I love being able to teach something that's really commonly misunderstood and so much misinformation and incomplete information and just misconceptions about what this is. I love being able to bring the Word to life in a way that hopefully makes sense and dispels a lot of those notions that, oh, Revelation, I don't even want to hear about that. I don't read that book. I don't want to read about that book because it's all about pain and suffering and judgment and tribulation and fire and brimstone and all those sorts of things. So I don't even want to read it. I have had literally people just tell me that. But that's so sad because it's not a book about those things. Those things absolutely are contained within the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But that's not what it's about. Revelation is a book about hope. It's a book where our Lord has from the beginning of time orchestrated everything that was going to happen to us in our human experience. Nothing catches him by surprise. He's always known the things we would go through, and he has made a way every step of the way to reveal his son Jesus to us. All the way back beginning in Genesis, Jesus has been revealed to us in one way or another, and it's up to us to then take that revelation that we receive and let it change our lives. And when we do that, as we come to the things that are unfolding in the revelation of Jesus Christ, it shouldn't be anything that's frightening to us. It shouldn't be anything that we're, oh my gosh, I hope it turns out the way that the Word says. There are so many clues as we read through the Word of God that help us to understand God has always been in control. And so that's why I'm excited, and so that's what I hope to share with you today. Hey, special welcome to visitors. If this is your first time here, welcome. It means a lot to us that you take your time and come uh, spend a little bit of time with us. Sometimes it's hard to put yourself out there and try something new. Um, this will be something new. For most of you, um, I would think this will be probably a little bit different than you might be used to. I teach a style called expository, which means we go book by book by book through the Bible. We're very much a teaching church, and again, my job is to make it come alive for you. So that's what I hope to do. going to be a lot of information, especially today. Today, we're going through two chapters, chapter 17 and chapter 18, and I'll tell you why in a minute. It makes sense that we're doing that, um, but there's going to be a lot of information. So um, if you've missed any of ours, I think I think Pastor Gabe said it, but maybe not. If you missed any of our previous messages, you can catch them on our podcast. You can podcast Google Play, iTunes, or go through our website and just listen right through there. But I'd recommend that you go back. If you like the style of teaching, and you're like, I want to hear more about this, go back and check out our previous messages in this series because we are on the home stretch now. We have gone through judgment, tribulation, trials, God's wrath, we have seen all those things unfold, and as they've gotten progressively worse, it's all been in an effort for a loving, sovereign God to get our attention, to get our attention. If you didn't already realize that you needed a Savior, His turning up the heat little by little by little as we th see these things unfold, it's all in an effort for Him to get our attention. 
and just simply to turn to him. He offers us a lifeline at every single turn. And so when we see things finally unfolding and the judgment that comes down, it's simply a result of people who are stubborn. They're resistant. They're outright defiant. And they say, I know who Jesus is. I know who God is, but I'm refusing. I don't want that. I don't need that. They've made that decision. It's not a matter of you just happen to be caught up in this. By the time we see these things unfold, you have very much made a decision. I am either going to follow Jesus Christ or I'm going to follow the Antichrist. You've made that decision. There are no more innocent bystanders here. So we've seen all that unfold. Now we start talking about the victory. So we've made a shift. Last week, if you were here last week, we talked about repentance. And we talked about how repentance is so much more than just fear of consequences, fear of the law. I'm going to repent because I'm afraid of. That's not how it works. Jesus taught from the beginning, and, and Scripture cleanly, uh, clearly states it's about heart. It's about your heart. Where's your heart as we go through this? And so you're going to see as we talk today, we're going to talk about Babylon. We're going to talk about the fall of Babylon. Now, as we see so many times in the Word, we see a literal Babylon. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. A literal Babylon, a place, a kingdom that did indeed fall, not once but several times over and over again, only to rise up again in another form. We see a physical Babylon, but we also see a spirit of Babylon. A spirit of Babylon that is a spirit of rebellion. It's a spirit of idolatry. It's a spirit of just rejecting the things of God. And so while it's important that the physical kingdom of Babylon falls, it's even more important that the spirit of Babylon that lives inside so many people also falls. And that's what we're going to see here today. So chapter 17 and 18 we're talking about, and they do flow together. Chapter 17 is about the, the fall of, of what Scripture will call the great harlot of false religion. So we see false religion judged and fall in chapter 17. 18 then is the spirit of, of wealth and power or greed and power through idolatry. We'll see all that in chapter 18. So these two both could be titled the fall of Babylon in one way or another, and so they're going to flow together. Before we do that, though, <coughs> excuse me, I've talked a lot about, and the word says a lot about, Babylon. So what is Babylon? I think to really understand it, we need to kind of go back and look for a moment about what Babylon really is, what it really represents and why it's important because from Genesis all the way until now we see the last chapter the victorious chapter of the Bible the very last one focuses quite a bit on Babylon and the fall of Babylon so let's go back and let's take a look at it really quick okay so let's take a few moments to do that first of all does anybody know who founded if you will for lack of a better term Babylon Anybody? Good. Last night I had a couple of brainiacs sitting in the front row, and they were answering their questions like, like there's no drama if you answer the question right off the bat. Babylon, the city or the kingdom of Babylon, was actually founded by a man named Nimrod. 
His name was Nimrod. Now, growing up when I did, Nimrod was always a term of derision. If you wanted to call somebody like foolish or simple or whatever, you'd call him a Nimrod. That couldn't be farther from the truth, actually. I don't even know if the two things are related, but they're not even close. The, the, the kingdom of Babylon was founded by a man named Nimrod at least 4,000 years before Christ. Okay, so about 6,000 years ago. Long, long time. In fact, those of you who are history buffs or maybe were paying attention during uh, history class in high school will remember the Epic of Gilgamesh. Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the, one of the very first ever recorded uh, great works of literature. And that was about 2000 BC or so. But Gilgamesh is actually uh, just another name given to Nimrod, this person of Nimrod. It happened in ancient Mesopotamia, but we also see all kinds of literature from other sources that corroborate or tell the account of this person named Nimrod. We see it in Babylonian literature. We see it in Assyrian literature. We see it in ancient uh, Hebrew literature, Hittite literature. We see that thousands and thousands of years ago, different cultures have known about and have documented this, this person of Nimrod. So let's talk about Nimrod. Here's what the Bible itself has to say about Nimrod, and it'll give you a little clue as to who he is. This is from Genesis, Genesis chapter 10. It's verses 1, and then I'm going to jump to verses 6 through 10. I'll read it to you here. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. Okay, you're already excited, right? These are the generations. No, don't start yawning yet. It gets good, I promise. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. And the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dadan. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. A lot of important things there to catch. First of all, Nimrod was Noah's great-grandson. Nimrod was Noah's great-grandson. And in Hebrew, which was that culture then, Hebrew now names mean, sometimes names have meaning. Sometimes they're generational or things like that. But sometimes it's just, uh, my name is Steve. Oh, really? What, is, what does Steve mean? Short for Stephen. Okay, that's kind of the depth that in our culture typically we go with names. But back then, names said very much about somebody's character, about their destiny, about their purpose. Very, very descriptive of, of their character. The word Nimrod in Hebrew literally translates as rebel. Translates as rebel. This is a great-grandson of Noah, who we know was found to be a righteous man. But here's how this came about. Scripture says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's really the first time that we see an individual elevated to any kind of a position other than just 
hey, we're all getting along together and we're all farming, we're all living off the land, we're all doing things together. This is the first time we really see a specific Nimrod mighty hunter before the Lord. So he was a strong man, a powerful man, but he was also a prideful man. And he took it upon himself to take his kingdom. This is also the first time we see a kingdom when it talks about his kingdom. When we see this happen, it's all through pride that he himself establishes a kingdom. It's not the Lord ordained and gave him a kingdom. It's not a birthright. His father wasn't a king, and now as son, he's the rightful heir to that kingdom. It's got nothing to do with heir Uh, being an heir or rightful or being appointed by the Lord, it has everything to do with a prideful man saying, I'm stronger than you, I'm bigger, I'm faster, I'm a better hunter, and therefore I'm establishing a kingdom. And I'm the head of that kingdom. And you will worship me. This is where we find Nimrod coming into the scene here. It's the first recorded earthly kingdom it actually is in modern-day Iraq, the area that, that Nimrod was, was given as his kingdom or took more accurately as his kingdom. It was Babel. It, he had several areas given to him, but Babel specifically was the largest city on earth for over a span of about 2,000 years. Somewhere around half a million or so people lived there. Far and far away, the largest kingdom or, or city known on earth at that point, and for quite a while it was. They all probably spoke the same language, most likely Hebrew, okay? So they were all kind of getting along. Everybody spoke the same language. But again, Nimrod, wanting to consolidate his control, wanted to do something to elevate himself even more. He aspired, he wanted to rule over men. He wanted to use the fact that he was a great hunter and and a mighty man before the Lord. He wanted to use that, but not in the way that was intended. So he founded what was probably the world's first multinational, multicultural, uh, multi-language, in fact, even center of society here, of, of culture. But he wanted to consolidate his control even more. So what he did is he built a monument to his greatness, but then also just to celebrate what they had done, this thing that they had done as Babel. Now, anybody heard of the Tower of Babel, right? To me, I'd always pictured it like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It kind of looks like that, right? I'd never really thought about it. Here's probably what it really looked like. It probably looked much like that. That's called a ziggurat. You see ziggurats all over in that culture in Mesopotamia and, and the Middle East. You see those, and it was a, it's a monument built to celebrate, to honor, to worship something. Okay, now this isn't an image of actually what it looked like, but it probably looked very much like that. We see things like this throughout that culture and being built. Now when Scripture says he built it and he wanted it to reach to the sky, simply just a metaphor for it being one of the tallest that anyone had ever seen. So he built this giant ziggurat as a monument to himself. Of course, we see another scripture for another time where the Lord comes in and scatters them because they had gotten so full of their own greatness. But there's a lot that happens between then. In fact, ancient historian Josephus, okay, this is a Roman historian, all the way back in the time of Christ, right? 
says this about Nimrod. Now, this is, this is, again, an independent documentation of who Nimrod is. And this is how Josephus stated it. Now, it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were though by his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his own power. That was thousands of years ago. Do we see any parallels to that kind of leadership today? We do. And it's important not to look at it and go, oh, end times are unfolding. I see that echoing here. But to realize that we see parts of this echoed all throughout history from the beginning of time. And at each step along the way, people would have seen these things as the unfolding. We're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. Babylon became the, cap, uh, the city of, of Babel, that is, became the capital of the Babylonian Empire. We see the Babylonian Empire doing all kinds of things, all the way going back to the time of Hammurabi. King Hammurabi, about 2000 B.C., is the one that really, really expanded this kingdom, really made it something. They worshipped sun gods. It has always been a center of idolatry a center of self-worship, a center of pride, a center of look what we have done and how great we are. That has always been the spirit that has surrounded Babel. And it's important to note that this is a principle that we see time and time again. The spirit that something is founded under, under underlies and carries all throughout everything else that it does. We see that in churches Churches that are founded under a spirit of split and argument and and infighting tend to carry that spirit throughout, and it becomes difficult. We see businesses, we see nations, we see governments founded in this spirit of rebellion and idolatry, and sometimes that carries through, and we see that over and over. So eventually this Babylonian empire was ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, We've seen that again and again. Persians, Muslims... At one time or another, all these different societies, cultures, have called Babylon home. But again, all of them, not believers and followers in God, okay, but all of them idolatrous, rebellious, very, very, in general, sinful, prideful cultures. So here's what Babylon probably looked like in its heyday. Okay, you see the ziggurat back there. Very, very, um, not an actual photo, by the way. I want to let you know. Okay. But it was, quite a, it was quite a city. Again, a monument to look what we have done. And it would have been the first one of its time. It's become virtually synonymous with idolatry. So in the time of Daniel, remember Daniel is Old Testament apocalyptic or Old, times, uh, Old Testament end times literature. Right, The book of Daniel, if you read that, it parallels uh, the Revelation so closely. But in the time of Daniel, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom. Would have been the, this kingdom, the one that we're looking at, would have been what they're talking about when they talk about Babylon. Because they destroyed the temple that Solomon built. 
Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, and the Babylonian kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar went and destroyed that. But that was back in 586 B.C. So Daniel would have, when he wrote his book, would have been thinking about, oh, it's Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the actual Babylon. He would have been seeing that. In the time of John, when he wrote Revelation, it would have looked to him like the Roman Empire, Okay, because Babylon had risen and fallen multiple times, but he would have been living right through the middle of the Roman Empire, persecuting Christians, building monuments to their own greatness, printing the name of Caesar on coins, asking people to worship Caesar as a god. He would have seen it. And then again, the Roman Empire destroyed the second temple. The temple was rebuilt, and they destroyed it again. That was about 70 A.D., We see this cycle repeated over and over again throughout history. And at each stage, people would have seen these things and thought, the time is now. I'm living this right now. But we see it cycle through again and again. So what does Babylon look like today? The spirit of Babylon, the place of Babylon. More importantly, again, we're talking about the spirit of Babylon. What would it look like today? Would it look something maybe like this? Anybody recognize that? If that is not a monument to our own greatness as a society, I don't know what is. What about this? Again, a monument to our own greatness. Look at us and look what we've done. It could look like that. Here's what actual Babylon looks like today. Here's all that's left of it. You see the ruins in the distance. This would be if you were in Iraq and you were standing on the the portico of Saddam Hussein's palace, looking out, that is what's left of Babylon. Physically, nothing left of Babylon. Nothing left of Babylon. Spiritually, there's a lot left of Babylon. That's what we're going to talk about here. So let's jump into the chapters. Um, For those of you who are visiting or, or who are new, the revelation of Jesus Christ is one of the is the only chapter actually in the Bible that starts out in verse 3, chapter 1 verse 3 and it says blessed is he who reads and he who hears the words of this prophecy and heeds the things written in it. So on that I'm going to read every single word of the scripture. So again if you go back and listen to our podcasts you will hear it all. Today I'm going to read chapter 17 and 18. We're going to do 17 first. Revelation chapter 17 it's 18 verses long. I use the New American Standard Version, so if you want to follow along, you can. If you have a different translation, it'll be a little different. If you didn't bring your Bible, I recommend you do next time, but just follow along. Just listen to what's going on here, and we'll take it apart, and we'll talk about it here in a minute. Revelation 17, verses 1 through 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. 
And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the ones called chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. A lot there, again, every chapter there is so much meat there. But in essence, what we're seeing here is this false religion of the Antichrist being judged, and ultimately being destroyed. That is the harlot. The great harlot is this this spirit of false religion. We see that imagery over and over again throughout the Bible where the word harlot is used for false religion. So let's jump in, look at some of the individual scriptures. Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Again, the great harlot represents that religion. The many waters represents all of the nations. Okay, so the harlot represents false religion. The many waters represents many nations. What has happened here is that world leaders have given their power and their authority to this harlot of false religion. Again, not a specific person, but an idea, a spirit. They've given her their authority in order to execute their purposes, which is gaining control. That's what they've been doing. Revelation 17, 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The scarlet beast here represents government, okay, world government in general. The heads, the horns, we see heads and horns symbolizing power and authority from other nations, other rulers giving her their power 
and their authority. So these other nations have literally given up their power to this great harlot of religion in order to accomplish control of the world. Revelation 17, 4, I'll read this to you. It says, The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. See, false religion at this point has risen to such a prominence in the world, it's almost achieved a a royalty status a sovereign status of its own, and that's represented by the colors, purple, scarlet. Again, they've, they've willingly given her their power and authority. She didn't seize it. They have given it to her. Revelation 17.5, And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Again, the capitals there in my version, the all caps, echo back to Old Testament scripture. It does that from time to time, and we see all the time prophets referencing back Old Testament scripture, not only to give authority to what they're saying. See, this is not the first time you've heard this. You were taught this thousands of years ago, but to remind people what's happening now was foreseen in the past. Nothing is new. As a side note here, back, we see where the mark of the beast was given to those who follow, and it says written on their foreheads. We also see where the followers of Christ have his name written on their foreheads. People wonder, is that literal or is that figurative? We don't really know for sure, and we don't know for a fact in Scripture either, but in this case where it says a name written on her forehead, in first century Rome, harlots, prostitutes for To be honest with you, prostitutes were licensed and sanctioned by the Roman government. And they would wear, typically, headbands with not only their name, but their profession written on them. It was a way of licensing, in essence, prostitutes. But we see this harlot of religion having the name written on her forehead, and that very much echoes what actual harlots or prostitutes would have done in that day. So yeah, literally in that case, written on their forehead, this harlot is, is a figurative harlot, but we see that idea carried through. Who do you belong to? And what's written on your forehead? So we see that. So verses 6 through 13, the angel explains to God how this harlot will support the purposes of the Antichrist and how governments will submit their power willingly and op- openly to her with the, with the idea that she would then pass that power on to the beast. And we see that. Re- Revelation 17, 14 then, jumping ahead. These will wage war against the Lamb. So they're coming together with all their power to wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. This is victory. This is what it looks like. But this is a prophecy still of victory yet to come. We're going to talk about this in coming chapters. In the next week or two, we will see the absolute final victory of Christ. It's exciting to see that coming. But where we are now, the Antichrist, world governments, and religion are all lining up, pooling their powers, marshalling their authority behind the purposes of the Antichrist, and their idea is to come against God but we see that they lose in a dramatic way. It's going to be exciting. Now, 
In the midst of all this, everybody pooling their powers together, they think they've put one over on God. Things are about to take a turn. Revelation 17, 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Wait a minute. Didn't they just partner with her? Didn't they just join forces with her in order to give power and authority to the Antichrist? Yeah. But now they're turning on her and they're tearing her apart. In other words, what they're going to do is destroy that false religion system that they have set up and replace it with another one that is dictated strictly by the Antichrist, the one religion that he will institute. And then they take control for themselves. Brings, brings meaning to the, the saying that we have no honor amongst thieves, right? They pool together to accomplish a purpose, but just as soon as that's done, they turn on each other. And that's what we see happening right here. Now, again, they think that they have put one over on God. We've used religion. We've used the thing that he established, and we've used it against him. We snuck up on him, and we put one over on him. The next verse in Scripture records what really happened. Revelation 17, 17 For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. God has always known what was going on. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nobody is smart enough, fast enough, quick enough, clever enough to surprise him. He has always known, and in fact, he uses them to execute his purposes. God is and always has been sovereign. This great harlot of Babylon that we read about, false religion, idolatry, we see that happening. It's led people astray for thousands of years. And it'll finally meet its end at the very hand of those who, as Scripture says, drunk the wine of her immorality. They will turn on her and destroy her. Now, that's the religion system. Now we go into chapter 18 and we'll see the political and economic systems judged and fall as well. So Revelation 18 is 24 verses. Again, a lot of imagery, so buckle up, here we go. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, And I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. 
For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has long gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid to waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as have made their living by the sea stood at a distance. What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all that had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid to waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpets will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Let's take a look at this. Again, last chapter, God was dealing with this harlot of false religion. Here he deals with also the harlot, but in the form of power and wealth. Revelation 18.1 says this, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. After these things, just the way that opens up, gives us a clue that it is a continuation of the previous chapter. Remember, chapters, verses, that's all stuff that we just added to this story. So it's a continuation there. Revelation 18, 2. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. We see this very thing echoed all the way back in Old Testament times, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 21, verse 9. Isaiah had just witnessed the actual defeat of the Babylonians. 
Okay, he had seen it. Excuse me, he had seen the Assyrians come in and conquer Babylon and trample it and destroy it. He had just seen that. But then God gives him this vision of what's going to happen in the future. So he had seen the physical fall, but God points out there's more. There's a spirit that's going to be dealt with here. So again, going all the way back to Isaiah, we see that idea. Revelation 18.3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. In other words, the single-minded pursuit of wealth, okay, but in a sneakier form. So we see all the way going back, we look at Daniel, okay, Daniel chapter 3, Old Testament scripture says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That is Nebuchadnezzar building a monument to himself in his own greatness. 60, cu- or, uh, 60 cubits, that's 90 feet tall. When we see a 90-foot tall gold statue of somebody, we point at it and say, that's idolatry right? We can identify that. That's easy. What about the sneakier forms of idolatry? What about the sneakier forms where we place things in our lives and importance above God? That's idolatry too, but it's sneakier. Let's look at some of this. God makes one last call for all remaining saints to to leave Babylon. So there must be some remaining believers there who are maybe trying to minister to those in Babylon. But God calls them out before he burns it to the ground. Revelation 18, 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. In other words, all that they had put their trust in, everything they had relied on for their livelihoods, for their very identities, was burnt to the ground. Didn't amount to anything. They had nothing left to rely on. Revelation 18, 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Again, I want to reaffirm this idea that Old Testament Scripture not only can be fulfilled at that time, in the Old Testament time when it was written, but also then again, it's called dual fulfillment, fulfilled again the idea in New Testament or much later times, sometimes over and over again, more than even twice. Going back to the prophet Jeremiah, again, Old Testament, Jeremiah 51. Let me read this to you and see if it echoes anything that's familiar to you. Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 51, verses 60 to 64. So Jeremiah wrote in a single scroll all the calamity which would come upon Babylon. That is, all these words which have been written concerning Babylon. Then Jeremiah said to Sariah, As soon as you come to Babylon, then see that you read all these words aloud and say, You, O Lord, have promised concerning this place to cut it off so there will be nothing left dwelling in it, whether man or beast, but it will be a perpetual desolation. And as soon as you finish reading this scroll, you will tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates and say, just so shall Babylon sink down and not rise up again because of the calamity that I'm going to bring upon her. And they will become exhausted. Thus far, 
are the words of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah had just seen the physical Babylon overthrown by the Persians. He had just witnessed that and then receives this word. So he knows that there's also a spirit that's going to be dealt with. Now, interesting thing on this prophecy here where it said it will be a place of perpetual desolation. I showed you that picture of what it looks like today across from Saddam's palace. If you go back and look in history, recorded history, there have been dozens of attempts to rebuild Babylon, to rebuild it, to restore it back. Okay, Maybe not into an actual city center, but as a monument. And each time that they've attempted to rebuild it, something has happened. Whether it's been a war, whether it's been earthquakes, something has happened to stop that rebuilding. The Lord's not allowing that to be rebuilt. So the reason for this destruction of Babylon, by the way, wasn't, wasn't the pursuit of wealth. Okay, The pursuit of wealth. God is okay with you being financially secure. God's even okay with you being wealthy. It's the single-minded pursuit of wealth that becomes a problem. Placing that pursuit of wealth and riches above your relationship with the Lord, that's when it becomes a problem. God is not angry with you because you work and you work hard and you make a good and comfortable living for your family. God has no problem with that. An honest living an honest work. God has no problem with that. Here's what he's got a problem with. Revelation 18, 24, the last verse here. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. That destruction of Babylon, both physically and the spirit of Babylon, was divine judgment against and for all of those who had given their lives and lost their lives in the pursuit of wealth and in the pursuit of idolatry. Over and over again, those who had been killed, lost their lives, given their lives to this pursuit. It even built a government system to support that greed. Sound like anything today? We see this over and over again. Jesus taught how important it was to watch where your heart was. Remember Sermon on the Mount? We taught about that what, a year or two ago. We taught about Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, it records the words of Jesus saying this, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then, few verses later, Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He takes time in the middle of that Sermon on the Mount to point out the dangers of this. That word wealth, by the way, translates in the Greek. Here's your Greek lesson for today. Translates as the word mammon. Mammon is very much an idea. And mammon means, literal translation, the treasure you put your trust in. The treasure you put your trust in. What are you putting your trust in? Where is your trust? Is your trust in a sovereign God? 
who knows you, loves you, and will take care of your needs? Or is your trust in what I can do? I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, I'm fast enough, I'm educated enough, I'm talented enough at my job, and I can do better than everyone else, and I can take care of myself and my family. Is that where your trust is? Or are you thankful that the Lord has gifted you with those talents, has gifted you with the ability to do those things, and has provided a way for you to do them to provide for yourself and your family? If that's where your heart is, there's no problem. If it's pride in what you can do, it's starting to become a problem. See, the spirit of of mammon and the spirit of Babylon is so pervasive in our society. We see here where God steps in, intervenes, and crushes it once and for all. But we as Christians are not told to wait until that happens. We can identify it and we can crush that spirit in our lives right now. So here's what it looks like. Here's what practically what that spirit or that idea of mammon looks like in your life. Envy over someone else's success. You ever wish that someone else wouldn't get a promotion just because I don't think they deserve it? How about anxiousness over having enough? Anybody ever lose sleep wondering, am I going to have enough to pay the bills next week, next month? I'm not talking about just the logical, how is this going to work? I'm talking about anxiousness, a spirit that is pervasive. How about disobedience over the use of what God has given you? Has God given you clear direction? I want you to give to this cause. I want you to do this or I want you to do that. And you have outright said, I'd love to, God, but I don't have enough zeros in my bank account to do that. It's a slippery slope there when we start thinking that way. Selfishness, I've got mine, you get yours. I've worked for mine. Why should some of it go to you? That's a scary one that we see every day in our society, right? And I've been guilty of that too. Devotion to the pursuit of wealth, success, power at all costs. That's what it looks like. Worship team, you guys can come on up. I'm going to wrap this up here really quick. The Apostle Paul foresaw that we were going to have trouble with this all the way back when he wrote this epistle to Timothy. An epistle is just a letter. He just wrote this letter to Timothy, giving him some guidance. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 10 says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it either." For if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who get rich, those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So in other words, boil it all down. Money is not evil. Wanting to be 
secure, and provide is not evil. The love of money, the love and the single-minded pursuit of money above all else is the root of all kinds of trouble. Failure to find contentment in the things of God. That's where problem comes in. God has given you and will give you every single thing you need to live your life. And if we find contentment in those things, then we can stand against those temptations of the harlot, whether it's power, authority, wealth, idolatry. Those things are easier to resist if you're content in the things that God provides. So we're going to wrap the message up. I've gone a little bit over. I apologize, but there was a lot of meat here this weekend. We're going to go into communion right now. If you're new here, here's how we do communion. We celebrate communion every single time we get together. And at the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers. You can serve yourself. You just dip into the juice and serve yourself that way if you'd like. Up front here, we have wine and bread and crackers. And Gabe and I will serve you here in a moment. If you'd like to be served, we can do that for you there. Let's do it with thankful hearts and remembering what Jesus did for us, but let's also do it with repentant hearts. So we're going to take a moment and pray before we break into communion. We're going to pray that God illuminates those things where we have placed something, we have idolized something, we've placed our job or a bigger TV or a bigger car or a bigger house or stuff where we've placed it over and above our relationship with the Lord. Because anytime we've done that, that is idolatry. Anytime we have pursued wealth over our relationship with the Lord, we're doing it again. So let's pray that he would illuminate those things, repent of them, and just walk away and start living that new life today. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord God, that you are so good and so merciful to us that you have from the beginning of time, you have made a way for us to see the true path, the path of righteousness, the narrow gate. Lord, there are many ways to live a life on this earth, but there's only one way that leaves, leads to life in Christ. So Father, we wanna set aside everything that won't fit through that gate our trailer full of baggage, all that stuff that we want to take with us, Lord, we set it aside in our pursuit of you and the path of righteousness. So, Father, we repent of those things that you're showing us right now that we have placed in importance above who you are and our relationship with you. Lord, we want nothing more than more of you. So, Father, help us. Help us to see those things. Help us to set them aside and show us more of your heart. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church.
Stay still. 